Well, brothers and sisters, you are aware that I, I ended the preaching in Mark's gospel at chapter 16 and verse 8 last time. You're also aware that in your Bible, you either have verses 9 to 20 as part of the inspired scripture, or if you have a New American Standard, an ESV or an NIV, you would have verses 9 to 20 in brackets. The reason for that is there are textual variants. Some manuscripts include that section as the word of God. Other manuscripts say, we don't believe that this is really part of the inspired scripture. I'm not going to take that up this morning. I do want to follow up, though, in a Sunday school class soon and take up that matter. It involves some technicalities of textual criticism and textual variants. I'm not an expert on those things. I'm putting a lot of time studying it, but we'll take that up soon. But I'm going to begin a series on prayer entitled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. And you can be turning to that passage in Hebrews 4 that I read earlier. The Jewish believers who were being addressed by this author, we don't know who the author of Hebrews was, but whoever it was, he was dealing with people who were being threatened with persecution. Now, the writer knew that the greater threat was not to their physical bodies, but to their souls. That is always the case, right? Jesus said, don't fear him who can kill the body, but cannot touch the soul. But fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Our bodies are precious to us. We want to care for them. We want to preserve them. But far more important is our souls. Because the state of our souls will determine where both our souls and our bodies spend eternity. And so the writer to Hebrews, writing to these believers, Hebrew Christians facing persecution, is concerned about their spiritual well-being. And because of the threat of persecution, they were tempted to retreat back to their old religion of Judaism. They were in danger of apostatizing or turning away from the Christian faith and going back to Judaism. And so the theme of this letter of Hebrews is Christ is better. Christ is better than the angels. Christ is better than Moses. He is better than the priest. His priesthood is a better priesthood than the priesthood of Aaron. He brings in a better, a new covenant. And you can't go back. You dare not go back. Christ is the fulfillment. Christ is the completion of of all that was revealed in the old covenant. Instead of drawing back from God, you need to be drawing near to God. And so the verses that we will consider this morning, along with many other portions in this letter, are giving strong encouragement to these Hebrew Christians not to pull away from the gospel, but to draw near to God, even as persecution threatens. It's also going to give us strong encouragement to prayer. I'm calling this the very foundation of prayer, the high priesthood of Jesus. Let me read the text again, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was, has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. 
Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I want us to know, first of all, the greatness of the high priesthood of Jesus. Verse 14 picks up on this theme that the writer had introduced earlier about Jesus being a high priest. In chapter 2, 17 to 3, 1, he talks about Jesus as a high priest. He says, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God. In verse chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus is called a, an apostle and a high priest. For the rest of chapter 3 and the rest of chapter 4, Jesus is compared to Moses and Aaron as an apostle. The word apostle, apostolos, means a sent one. Moses and Aaron were sent by God on a mission to set the people free from physical bondage in Egypt. But his point in chapters 3 and 4 is that Jesus is a greater apostle. He's a greater sent one because he was sent on a greater mission, not to rescue us from physical affliction in Egypt, but to rescue us from eternal hell. And so Jesus in chapters 3 and 4 is a greater apostle, a greater sent one than Moses and Aaron. But now here in our passage, he picks up the idea that Jesus is also a high priest. And he runs this theme all the way through the end of chapter 10. Jesus is called here a great high priest. Why? First of all, because he is a saving divine high priest. Notice it says in verse 14, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now let's talk a little bit about the priesthood in Israel. The importance of the priesthood cannot be understated. Way back in the garden, our parents sinned against God. And as a result of that sin, they deserved to die. They deserved to be forever separated from God, even into eternity. But as we know, the good news is that God, from the very beginning, made a way for man to be reconciled to God, for that friendship with God to be restored. And the key word is substitution. That's the key word when it comes to salvation. That instead of punishing the sinner, God was willing to punish something or someone else in the sinner's place so that he wouldn't have to condemn the sinner but could forgive the sinner. Now, in, in the garden, God killed an animal and clothed them with animal skins. That's a picture that something had to die for you to be forgiven. And so when God chooses a nation to be his special people, the Jewish nation, he sets up a priesthood. And what was the job of the priests? Well, the priests were teachers of the people, but they also had another function. The people were, the priests rather, were the mediators between the people and a holy God. And the people were instructed to bring various animal sacrifices, and it was the priest who would take those sacrifices and, and offer them on the altar on behalf of the sinner so that they could be forgiven. So priests were very vital to the community of, of Israel and to the forgiveness of God's people. And there was a regular succession of priests in Israel. When one would die, another would take his place. Now, the highest-ranking priest in Israel was called the high priest, and he had a special function on a particular day called the Day of Atonement. 
on that day, that one man, the high priest, would go into the very innermost part of the temple, which was the holiest place. It was called the Holy of Holies because that's where God would especially manifest his presence. The mercy seat were there. Two cherubim was there. The Shekinah glory was there. That's where God's presence was especially shown to the people, that inner place, that inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies. And the high priest would go in once a year to perform an elaborate ritual. To do so, he bathed his body both before he went in and after he came out. He put on a holy linen tunic, holy undergarments, other holy garments. He would offer up a bull as a sin offering to cover his own sin and the sins of his own household. He would offer up incense, which was a symbol of prayer. He would take a goat and kill it and then sprinkle its blood on the mercy seat for the sins of the people of Israel. And then there was another goat, and over that goat he would lay his hands and confess the sins of the people and send that goat off into the wilderness, and it would symbolize as that goat is running off into the wilderness, God has sent away your sins and you you will not be guilty. So once a year, this high priest alone would go in and make atonement for the people on the Day of Atonement. And during that time that he was in there, he would be out of their sight until he completed that ritual. Ah, but now comes the Lord Jesus, the great high priest. Why is he great? Because he did not merely pass out of sight temporarily into an inner room of a physical temple. The text says here, he passed out of sight through the heavens. Listen to Hebrews 9, 24 to 26. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, that priest would go into a physical temple, but that temple on earth was simply a copy of the real presence of God. God manifested himself in that physical temple, but where is God's real presence? It is in heaven, right? That's why we pray, our Father who is in heaven. And Jesus didn't go into a physical temple. That was just a copy of the true presence of God. Jesus passed through the heavens. He went to heaven, the true place where God is, and he went there to be there permanently. And what blood did he bring? The priest would bring the blood of bulls and goats. Chapter 9, 11, and 12 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal salvation. Why is Jesus a great high priest? Because he is a divine saving high priest, greater than those high priests in Israel. In what ways? They made atonement year after year, again and again. It says in those texts we read, he had to make atonement only once. They made atonement for the people with bulls and goats. He didn't bring the blood of bulls and goats into the heavenly 
place. He brought his own blood. He was the self-sacrificing high priest. And unlike those priests who died off and had to be replaced, listen to what it says in Hebrews 7, 23 and following. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. They made repeated sacrifices. He made only one. They made sacrifices with bulls and goats. He made the sacrifice with his own blood. They made sacrifices by many priests because they died off. He ever lives to make intercession for us. So for all who come to God through Jesus Christ, God will accept his blood, his death, in exchange for yours. You can have eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, as a free gift, because as the hymn says that we will read at the we will sing at the close, Jesus, my great high priest, offered his blood and died. My guilty conscience seeks no sacrifice beside. His powerful blood did once atone, and now it pleads before the throne. The reason his blood is powerful to atone for our sins is because it says in our text in verse 15 that he was without sin. If Jesus had been a sinner like those high priests, he would have had to offer up an animal for his own sins, but he had no sin. Therefore, his perfect life is able to count for us in our woefully imperfect lives. So the greatness of Jesus' high priest is the fact that he is a saving, divine high priest who has passed not into a physical temple, but into heaven, there to present his blood as a perpetual sacrifice to pay for our sins. But there's another reason Jesus is a great high priest from our text. It is because he is a sympathetic human high priest. Verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Notice he is called Jesus here. That is his human name. When the angel came to Mary, she said, you shall call his name Yeshua, Yahshua, Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is his human name. That's because Jesus is fully human. He had to be God in order to offer a perfect sacrifice acceptable to God, but he also had to be human in order to pay the price for the sins of humans. And so we have in Jesus, the God-man, fully God, fully man, not half God, half man. You remember the, the mythical centaur, you know, had the, the bottom of a beast and the, you know, torso of a man. He's not a, a half man, half God. He's fully God, fully man, even though that's a great mystery to us. And as fully man, He's a sympathetic high priest. Why? Because he was tempted, it says, in all things as we are. Are you tempted physically with your physical drives and desires? 
We all are. So was Jesus. He was tempted by hunger. In the wilderness, Satan, after he had fasted, Jesus had fasted 40 days, said, turn these rocks into, into bread. What a temptation to a, a hungry man. Jesus knows what it is to face the temptation of physical desires and drives. Are you often tempted by selfish ambition? Oh my, are we? And how often we fall to selfish ambition, how selfish we can be. Jesus was tempted to selfish ambition. Again, in the wilderness, the devil took him up on a high mountain and said, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. You want to you be great? You want to be a king? Here, I'll, I'll give you those kingdoms. Just bow down and worship me. Jesus was tempted to a selfish ambition contrary to the will of his father. Are you tempted to popularity? Are you tempted to the praise of people and valuing the praise of people above the praise of God. We all struggle to some degree or another with the fear of man, don't we? Well, that tempted Jesus as well, because also in the wilderness, the devil took him up on the temple and he said, throw yourself down and your father will send his angels to catch you and you'll make a big splash. You'll make a big hit, Jesus. Just bypass the cross. So Jesus was tempted in that way. Are we tempted at times to put family in front of God? We are. And Jesus said, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. We're to love our family, but we're to love God supremely. We can be tempted to love our family more than God. Jesus was tempted that way. In Mark chapter 3, when we studied it, Jesus is teaching a group of people, and they report to him, oh, your mother and your brothers are here. What does he do? Oh, sorry, I've got to tend to my mother and brother. No, he doesn't. But he says, who is my mother and my brothers? The one who does the will of God. He loved his mother. He loved his brothers. But he loved the duty he was given by his father more. Were these Hebrew Christians tempted to draw back? Tempted to shrink back in fear of persecution coming to their bodies. They certainly were. What about Jesus? You remember in the garden how he prayed as he faced the agony of the cross, the physical agony, the unimaginable spiritual agony of being ripped apart from his father, God estranged from God. And he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus knew what it was like to fear doing the right thing, as doing his father's will, or when Satan tempted him through Peter. Jesus said, I'm going to go up to the Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of the chief priests and elders. And Peter says, oh, no, Lord, this can't happen to you. And that was a temptation to Jesus to bypass the cross. And he said, get behind me, Satan. Even on the cross itself, Jesus was tempted what did they say? What did his enemies say? If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. And he had the power to do so. Even in his dying hours, he was tempted to spare himself. But he did not. And so the greatness of Jesus' high priesthood is not only that he is a divine high priest that we need to take care of our sins once for all and forever, but how great is it that Jesus is also fully man, fully human, who went through the, the fiery trials of living in a sin-cursed, alluring world, suffering 
the attacks of a prowling malicious devil. And you can bet that the devil leveled more attack upon Jesus and the fullness of his weaponry more against Jesus than against any one of, of us. You know, we can be quick to think, however, and that was no big deal for Jesus to resist temptation because he was God. But someone gave an illustration that was helpful to me. You have to imagine for a minute that I'm Superman. That's a stretch. But suppose I have a, a, a rod of iron and a rod of steel. Superman used to bend steel, right? Now, if you bend that rod of iron, iron is brittle. And you bend that rod of iron, at some point it's going to snap because it's brittle. But steel is tempered iron. And steel is going to maintain more pressure and not snap like iron. Well, the illustration is this. When we're tempted and we give in, we're feeling less pressure than one who's tempted like that steel bar and doesn't give in. So there's a sense in which Jesus felt more of the pressure of temptation than we do because we so often give in, and he did not give in to that temptation. And so Jesus was a great high priest. Let's look next at the accomplishment of Jesus' high priesthood. What did he accomplish according to our text? Very simply, what he accomplished is turning God's throne into a throne of grace. The great accomplishment of the great high priesthood of Jesus was this, that he turned the throne of God, which is a throne of justice, judgment, and wrath, into a throne of grace. Verse 16, therefore, let us draw near with confidence. As a result of Jesus' high priestly work, let us draw near with confidence to the what? Throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. According to the Bible, God is the absolute sovereign of the universe. The psalm says he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one is able to stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He's the sovereign creator. He's the sovereign sustainer and preserver, and therefore he gets to be the sovereign judge. And in this very letter, Hebrews 9, 27, a verse well-known to many Christians, it says, it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And a chapter later, chapter 10, 31 and 32, tells us this, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, let me back up to 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For you, every one of us is going to stand before God in the judgment someday. And if you stand there unprepared, the Bible says it is a terrifying thing to be in the presence of God and at the judgment bar of God. And I say to you that God is not like the Wizard of Oz. Remember that old classic? Dorothy and her friends come into a room, and there's this ominous, fearsome face that is thundering out threats to them, and there's smoke and peals of loud noise, and they're trembling there before this ominous face and voice. 
And then the little dog Toto discovers that really what is behind it is just a, a little man pulling on levers. And there's really no threat from a wizard of Oz. Well, dear friends, God is not the wizard of Oz. He is really a just God, and his throne is really a, a throne of justice and judgment and wrath, and it is terrifying for all who are there unprepared. But the good news is that that throne has been turned into a throne of grace. How so? I'm going to turn you for a couple of minutes to Revelation 5. How did the throne of God's wrath toward deserving, ill-deserving sinners become a throne of grace. Listen to Revelation 5. We read it a while back. John's vision of heaven and a throne I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Vern Poitras, in his commentary on Revelation, says about that scroll, that book, he says, the close parallel with Daniel 12, 4 makes it most likely that the scroll is a heavenly book containing God's plan and the destiny of the world. William Hendrickson agrees and similarly says that the scroll, quote, represents God's eternal plan, his decree, which is all comprehensive. It symbolizes God's purpose with respect to the entire universe throughout history and concerning the, all creatures in all ages and to all eternity. And then Hendrickson goes on to say that Christ taking the scroll, quote, very clearly refers to the fact that Christ, as mediator at the ascension, received authority to rule the universe according to God's eternal de decree. This does not mean that God the Father leaves the throne, but it does mean that Christ, the mediator, is seated upon the throne together with the Father. From this moment on, it is the throne of God and of the Lamb. And we read in Revelation 22.1, then the last book of the Bible, then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Why has the throne of God's holy wrath become for his believing people a throne of grace? Because not only is the Father on that throne, 
but the lamb is on that throne who died to pay for all of our sins and ever lives to make intercession for us. On that throne is a lamb who intercedes for us as our advocate. That's why for us as believers, that throne is no longer a throne of anger, wrath, and judgment. It is a throne of grace. And finally, consider the encouragement of Jesus' high priesthood. What does it practically mean? Why did the writer write these verses to these believers facing persecution? Well, like I said, they, they, were, they had not yet suffered to the shedding of blood, but it might be coming. And uh, he wanted to steal their courage and plead with them never to go back to Judaism. Now, we know as those who believe in sovereign grace that God's people will never finally fall away. But that doesn't take away from the reality of the temptation, does it? The way God keeps us in the way is by giving us these warnings that you dare not turn away. So as I like to say, you, you will never turn away, you, you, but, but you must hold on to Christ, right? And it's true that among God's professing people, not all possess him. And so he's giving these warnings. Don't turn away from Christ. So the first encouragement given to these Hebrew Christians regarding the high priestly work of Jesus turning the throne into a throne of grace is this. We have reason to keep believing. And so he says in verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What he's saying to them is that the temple, the altar, the holy place, the mercy seat, the incense, the priest were all temporary types. Jesus is the reality. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the antitype. We have in Jesus a finished salvation. All that went on in the old covenant was scaffolding. You builders know well what scaffolding is, right? You're building a building and you put scaffolding up. But when the building is completed, the scaffolding comes down. The scaffolding was the blood of bulls and goats. The completed building was the blood of Jesus. There's no more scaffolding to stand on. The blood of bulls and goats and any other sacrifice will never take away your sins. There's only the blood of Jesus, the building. And unless you enter that building, you are homeless. You are lost without salvation. To turn away from Jesus' high priestly work is to leave you without a sacrifice to take away sin. It leaves you lost. So his first message to these Hebrew Christians is, hold on to Jesus. Don't let go of your confession of Jesus Christ as your high priest. In Jesus, you are safe. In Jesus, you have one whose blood is constantly pleading before the mercy seat, in the true presence of God. And don't fear whatever you will suffer in your body. Hold on to Jesus. But another encouragement is we have reason to pray with confidence. That's verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Second encouragement from the high priestly work of Jesus is we have reason to pray with confidence. Why? Because he promises that at that throne of grace, we will find mercy and we will find grace to help. First, we can find mercy. 
When our first parents sinned, they were banished from God's presence. And friends, that sentence of banishment still hangs over the human race. We are all banished from God's presence. We're all separated from God because of our sin. And if you are one who has never come to Jesus with whole soul trust in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, if you've never been born of the Spirit of God, never become a new creation, you are still under the wrath of God. God does not hear any of your prayers because Proverbs 15, 8 says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. By nature, we are all wicked and God doesn't hear your prayers. And if you are outside faith in Jesus, nothing you have ever done has pleased God. Why? Because Romans 8, 8 says those who are in the flesh, which is what unbelievers are, cannot please God. And if you are outside of Jesus Christ as an unbeliever, friend, what you need is mercy. But that's the very thing that is offered to you. His throne is a throne of grace that we might receive mercy. And mercy is God's pity on us in our miserable state and not giving us what we deserve. Jesus told a parable in Luke 18 about two men in the temple, and one was a tax collector, a lowly despised tax collector. And he was so aware of his sin, he was too ashamed to lift up his eyes to heaven, but it's beat on his breast, and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That prayer God heard. And Jesus said, that man went down to his house justified right with God. And if you're outside of Jesus, the first prayer that God will hear and honor from your lips is God, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. I believe Jesus is that savior, that high priest whose blood alone can take away my sins. Be merciful to me, a sinner. God will hear that prayer and God will show you that mercy. It's an amazing but true reality with the Christian gospel that at one moment you can be a child of wrath and at the very next moment, be a child of God destined for heaven. That's the good news of the gospel. You don't have to earn it and work for it. Slave. One moment, faith in Jesus translates you from death to life, destined for hell to destined for heaven. That is the good news of the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. But then, not only do we find mercy to enter this life of fellowship with God, but it says we can find grace to live this life. Therefore, let us, because of what Jesus did as the high priest, let us draw near with confidence, boldness to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, the Christian life cannot be lived apart from the grace of God. You can live a religious life apart from the grace of God. You can live an outwardly moral life apart from the grace of God, and there are many people who do that. You cannot live the truly Christian life apart from the grace of God. Why? Because the Christian life is a life lived from a new heart that is given by supernatural grace and sustained by supernatural grace. And that's why the Apostle Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 15.10, for by the grace of God I am what I am. That's why he could say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.1, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The truly Christian life 
can only be lived by grace. If you're to live a life pleasing to God as his child, it must be by the grace of God. But praise God, his throne is a throne of grace. A place where God invites us to come and to come boldly, confidently. A place where God welcomes us to come and delights in us coming. A place where he expects us to come. And a place to which when we come, God is glorified. As I read my Bible, Old Testament or New, God is jealous for his glory. I went through the book of Ezekiel and dozens and dozens of times, God does what he does in judgment and mercy with this phrase, then they will know that I am the Lord. He wants to be known as the Lord. He's jealous rightfully for his glory. And so he loves it when we come helpless and needy so that he can manifest his grace because that's to his glory. And so he's glorified when we come to him for grace. And we need grace, don't we, to live this life. We need grace to cleanse us from our ongoing sins because we continue to sin. We need grace to go through the trials that we go through and come out on the other end, not bitter, but better, as is said, right? Trials make people bitter. We had a man die in our community in his 80s, a neighbor, and he was bitter against God. He hated God. Every time someone tried to witness to him, he shook his fist at God. I think one of his grandchildren was born autistic, and he hated God, and he died. I presume, shaking his fist at God. Trials will either make you bitter or better. We need grace for the trials to make us better and not bitter. We need grace to not be weary in well-doing, especially when there doesn't appear to be any earthly reward for doing good. We need to not be weary in well-doing. We need grace for that. We need grace to put to death our remaining selfishness and pride and self-pity and all of our remaining sin. We need grace. We need grace to love people, to love our family, to love our brethren, to love, our, to love lost sinners. And aren't there those people that you find it especially difficult to love? There's a whole New Growth Press booklet on loving difficult people. We need grace to love the people that we find it hard to love. We need grace to resist temptation that sometimes screams at us. And we need grace, especially in our day, to be bold, to speak, and to live for Christ in a hostile world. And God's promise is to give us the grace we need. Draw near to the throne of grace that we might find, receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The grace we need, God is willing to supply, to forgive and cleanse us of every sin, to give us grace to obey every command, to resist every temptation, to follow every good example, to believe and act upon every promise. What an encouragement it is to our prayer life. How can we not take advantage, brothers and sisters, of this throne of grace? How can we regard lightly what Jesus has done to turn it into a throne of grace and how it honors him when we take full advantage of that throne of grace and come in our dependency and weakness because he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. I close with this. In a real sense, our prayer lives are the real measure of the depth and quality of our Christian lives. Follow my little logical syllogism here. 
if we can only live a God-pleasing life by his grace, and if that grace is available to us only at the throne of grace, then the real measure of the depth and quality and maturity of our Christian lives is our prayer lives. How often do we come to that throne of grace? Everything we do, dependent on ourselves and our own resources in the flesh, is not pleasing to God. Only what we do by the grace of God is pleasing to God. And that grace is only at the throne of grace. And we come to that throne of grace in prayer. So it's a sobering thought that the measure of your and my spiritual maturity is our prayer lives. And in a real sense, the real measure of the maturity and usefulness of our church is our prayer life and our prayer meetings. If the real and deep work of the church is God's work done through us, because only God can save sinners. Only God can sanctify saints. The work of the church is, is a divine, supernatural work that God must do through us. And if to unleash God's power, we need to come to the throne of grace to receive the needed help to do his work. And if all that is done apart from his grace is built on the wrong foundation and his wood, hay, and stubble, then is not the measure of our church's effectiveness, maturity, and usefulness as an instrument for God, our church's prayer life. May that be an encouragement to our corporate prayer life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that along with the holy God, your Father, you occupy the throne as the Lamb of God. And by virtue of that, that throne is now a throne of grace. Thank you. Forgive us for not coming more often to that throne. Help us to come individually and as a church more frequently to that throne of grace that you might do your powerful work through us to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.